Well, good morning. I have some news for you guys. Um, I, uh, I walked into the back of the building, and this isn't because I walked in the back of the building, and I wouldn't normally greet you guys this way, but I did want to let you guys know that you smell. Um, and uh, the truth is, the smell that I'm talking about has nothing to do with the cologne or perfume you're wearing or not wearing, or whether you've taken a shower this morning or you took one four weeks ago. The smell that we're, we're talking about is the smell that science actually suggests that everyone has of their own, a unique smell that they say is similar to a fingerprint. And Monell Chemical Census Center actually remains, says that that smell that you have is so predictable that it remains regardless of whether or not you eat specific foods or not. In fact, there is research being currently done, and I kid you not, I'm not sure if it's a waste of time or not, but they are actually trying to determine and believe that it is just as predictable as your fingerprint, which makes sense, right? We have police dogs that are able to sniff out and track a person's scent and be able to separate between two different kinds of people. And it's not based upon what foods you're eating or not eating, but as a part of this research, what they're actually determining is that these dogs, which we already know can actually smell things like diabetes and other conditions, these dogs are actually now triggering on things like lung cancer and other uh, debilitating diseases that they can catch very early. But we're not going to be talking about our own personal smells this morning, as good or bad as they may be. We're going to be looking at the victorious aroma of Christ. And we're going to look at it in context to our Easter series, A Testimony of the Cross, from 2 Corinthians 2, 2 through 5. So regardless of how we may smell physically or the various other smells around us, God has called His church to be the unique aroma of Christ within the world and so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to be looking at this text through the lens of the cross. So let's go ahead and look at verses uh, 12 through 17 here out of chapter 2. And let's stand as we read 2 Corinthians 2 verses 12 through 17. And this is what it says. It says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord... My spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of him and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of the, God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the power of this word, reminding us that we are your aroma Father, I pray that today we would be reminded as we smell things, as we move throughout the places that we're at, that we too are to be the smell, your smell, 
to a world in need of your presence and in need of your grace. Embolden us, God, to live with passion for you, with perseverance for you, and strengthen us in your grace to walk righteously with you as representatives of your grace. Lord, move me aside and speak to each of us this morning. Speak to our hearts. And may we humbly respond to your word as it penetrates deep into our hearts. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Just as we get started this morning, I ask that you just be praying for me. My mind's a bit distracted this morning, and, and so I want to stay focused on God's Word and want God's Word to be preeminent in our gathering this morning. And so if you just silent be, be in prayer this morning, I'd appreciate that. When we look at this passage, what we see is that believers are an aroma of Christ and His victorious work on the cross everywhere. Simply put, believers are an aroma of Christ and His victorious work on the cross everywhere. That's what we're looking at this morning. We're looking at the call that God has given us to be an aroma everywhere for Christ. Now, Paul is beginning to explain to the Corinthians here in 2 Corinthians why he didn't come to them as initially planned. As we saw last week, we... He made the decision in verse 1 not to make another painful visit to them. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 through 24, he gives context to this decision when he says, But I call God to witness against me. The reason that he doesn't come, in essence, it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. So what was happening, as we saw last week, was that Paul had had written to the Corinthians because he had already confronted an ongoing issue of sin within the Corinthian church. And what happened in that moment was that they responded with disdain. They responded by rejecting him. And the response towards him was harsh. In fact, it was so harsh, they questioned his apostleship. In fact, the questions that they were actually dealing with were, in essence, Hey, Paul, if you're a follower of Christ, why do you suffer? If you're following me, why are you still having these difficult times, these difficult seasons, and why are you experiencing turmoil and strife? If you're in Jesus, life should be good. Well, we kind of have that same mentality today. We can often believe that when we come to Christ, things get better. The truth is, is that our circumstances may not change, but our hope does. Our peace does. Our joy does. Because our joy and our hope and our peace are found in Christ. When we look at Passages like 1 Corinthians 13, the famous passage on love, right? At the end of 1 Corinthians 13, well, actually towards the middle, we're told a translation 
that I think has been misrepresented. It says that love never fails. It's actually not the accurate word in Greek. The word there is ends. Love never ends. The context takes us through the journey that the end of chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, what we're told is that faith, what? And hope and love are the greatest of these, but love is the greatest. Why? Because the day that we stand before the, love, before the Lord, our faith will be fulfilled. Our hope will be fulfilled. But love will never end. It will never end. When we stand in the presence of God, love will continue. It will be the one thing that continues with us. So Paul is writing to the Corinthians out of love. He says there in verse 4 of chapter 2, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. But love costs, does it not? Jesus loved us and he lost his life. So Paul is explaining to them that rather than visiting Corinth, Rather than coming to you, I needed to write to you so that it would not be another battle, but rather for you to chew on it, to think on it, because we are doing this in joy together. And we saw that last week as we looked at that passage. But here, Paul has written to the Corinthians and he's telling them to forgive the repentant brother. And so rather than visiting Corinth, he actually sends Titus to Corinth. He sends Titus to Corinth, we know, with a letter that was actually prior to this letter that is telling them, hey, listen, there needs to be correction. And Paul knows how severely he's been treated. And so rather than going to Corinth, Paul goes to Troas. And from Troas, he goes to Macedonia. Now, in the midst here of him going to Troas, we're told that his spirit is at unrest. It's not, it's not settled. It's not settled because Titus was supposed to arrive in Troas, and he has not. But in the midst of this unsettledness, at the heart of this portion of Scripture, Paul declares, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. This is the central idea of what we're looking at this morning. See, believers' lives are to testify to the truth of Christ and His redeeming work. Now, this word aroma, which shapes and actually shapes our understanding of the entirety of this passage, is the word euodia in Greek. It's the only time it's used in this passage. And the word is a word that means sweet-smelling or pleasing. This is not a bad-wafting aroma. This is a sweet-smelling or pleasing aroma. However, more than just the use of this word to describe something as sweet-smelling or pleasing, it actually is designed to, to take us back to the sacrifices of God. I remember years ago, somebody coming to me and my family and saying, isn't it great that God loves steak? I've never really been able to look at a barbecue the same, and I'm not joking. It, it kind of shaped me a little bit. Like, I'm like, 
that accurate? It wasn't necessarily that Jesus or that God loved the smell of beef, although it's a good smell to like. It's what it represented was the best of the herd, the best of the flock, being sacrificed for the sake of Christ. In Leviticus 1, verses 3 through 9, it says, If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. The priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. See, Paul's saying here that our lives are an aroma of Christ to God. In other words, a pleasing sacrifice to him. A pleasing sacrifice. This is why Paul appeals to us in Romans 12.1 when he says, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our lives are an aroma to him. And we are to be the aroma of Christ wherever we go. So what this passage or portion of Scripture does then is it helps us see three truths about being an aroma of Christ and His victory. Three truths about being an aroma of Christ and His victory. The first truth is that an open door for ministry is not the only priority to be considered. Notice what it says. He says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. When Paul arrives at Troas, there is an open door to preach the gospel. This is every minister's dream. What's it saying? It's seeing that every time, in essence, that he's proclaiming the gospel, people are responding to it by faith in Jesus. This is great. This is not Sonoma County. And I say that actually with not disdain. Because what we see here is that an open door is a wonderful thing that God blesses, but he blesses so much more. And many of the places that God calls us to are places that don't have open doors. It's actually how much of the world hears the gospel for the first time. So God has opened a door for Paul. And yet, Paul is at unrest. He's unsettled in his spirit. I think our theology sometimes says, listen, if the door's open, step through it. But the Christian life is a constant 
of prayer and waiting on the Lord and then discerning and movement with the Lord. The Christian walk is not a rapid race. It's a marathon. And a marathon means it requires strategy. It takes discernment. If you've ever run in a marathon, I've never run in a marathon, but I've run in a 10K. When you start in that pack, it's miserable. It's miserable. Everybody's around you. You can't find your own pace. And what I do know is it's very easy to follow somebody else's pace. All you want to do is get free of that crowd. And for a person like me who's not a crowd guy and isn't necessarily a touchy guy, rubbing up against other people that are sweating like crazy is not my thing. Right? And then you have to take short steps and you can't find your stride. And finally, when you get to a place where it's wide open and you can start to run, you're not even sure if you're running at your own pace. And you have to resettle in. But if you try to force your way out of that pack, you'll ruin the rest of the race. You have to be patient. You have to actually wait for the opportunity for the pack to thin out. And then you can move forward in it. It's a picture of our walk with the Lord. Our walk with the Lord is not just to take every open door and step through it. Our walk with the Lord is to see the open door and say, Lord, do you want me to step through it? A need does not mean that you're called. It doesn't mean that you're not called, though, either. And it doesn't mean that we don't step into it and even test it and see it. But what it does mean is that we use discernment, prayerful discernment. And so Paul here comes and he loves this open door, but his spirit is conflicted. An open door for the gospel where I can make a difference for Jesus, but my spirit is unsettled because I have a commitment to Titus. I've sent Titus to the Corinthian church, and Titus has not met me back at Troas. Paul is burdened. He's burdened to the point where he cannot really even do the ministry that God is calling him to do. His priority to, to Titus and the Corinthian church is outweighing the ministry that is in front of him. There are times in our lives where we're going to have open doors that the priority of our life, God's priority of our life, will drive us in a different direction. There may be situations that come up that require you to turn to give attention to your family. There may be times when two wonderful opportunities are vying for your attention. But God may have you go in the harder direction than the easier direction. One commentator put it this way, with no high-speed communication system in the ancient world, waiting anxiously for news could be excruciating. Paul was therefore torn between Troas and Corinth, between putting out a brush fire in a church conflict as a pastor and kindling the embers of new faith as an evangelist. Most ministers know firsthand that the demands and pressures of the ministry can pull them in different directions. 
Thus, they may sympathize with Paul, who could not put his distress about Titus and the Corinthians out of his mind. This spiritual unrest so distracted him that it inhibited his work with Troas, so he was forced to make a reluctant and solemn farewell. Sometimes our own strength of character can get us in trouble, can it not? In my family, there was a high value put on not quitting. When an open door is before you, it can feel like quitting. But God was directing Paul's steps all along. And that unsettled spirit within him over his care for the priority of Titus and the Corinthian church was what God was directing him towards. And so Paul leaves Troas discouraged and anxious to go to Macedonia in hopes of seeing Titus on the way. And along with that, the open door he's leaving behind waves heavy on his heart. When God is moving, you don't always want to leave. There's a great study from years ago, Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. And it basically said, get on the wave, get on the wave that God's taken. There's truth to that. And we need to recognize that. But there are also times when God tells us to get off the wave. Because he's got another wave for you. And it may not be as fun. And it may not be as exciting. And it may not make sense. But we need to recognize that the open door is not always the door that we run through. The open door is not always the door that we cling to. The one that we cling to is Christ. And we allow him to lead every aspect of our life. And it means that the greatest priority is not an open door for ministry, but it means that it is the love of Christ at work within us, directing and leading us. It was Paul's love for Titus. It was Paul's love for the Corinthian church that was motivating him away from this open door in Corinth, or excuse me, in, in Troas. And it was where Paul was supposed to go. It was no mistake. But you can sense amongst Paul here that he's discouraged. He's discouraged about Titus and he's discouraged about giving up this opportunity. But notice the change in attitude in verse 14. He leaves this open door, and you can imagine Paul is walking going, I know I need to go. I'm distracted from the things that God wants me to do. And this is not where he has me because he's moving me in a different direction. But man, that is awesome. And am I leaving those people there to die? This is an open opportunity for God. But the beauty is this. You can picture it as Paul is walking. And he says, but thanks be to God. Who Christ always leads in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Regardless of where I go. God is going to use me. Regardless of where I'm at. He is going to be the one that is working in and through me. And Troas. Their salvation does not depend solely on me. Redemption Hill 
This church does not rise and fall on Tim Swanson. And the best thing about this year is we got a picture to see that, did we not? Christ's church is sustained not because of man, but because of him. And so, the second truth is that we can rejoice knowing that Christ leads us triumphantly in spreading his fragrance. We can rejoice knowing Christ leads us triumphantly in spreading his fragrance. What a change in attitude for Paul. He's discouraged. He leads Troas. Now he's saying, but thanks be to God. We know that when Paul arrived in Macedonia too, things weren't going well. So picture this for a minute. Paul actually is in Troas. Things are going great. He's able to share the word. People are responding to him. The idea of an open door is God is working through him consistently. He's being received and he's discouraged. Then he comes to Macedonia. And we know from 2 Corinthians 7 that this was not a great experience. It says, For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Here's what's going on. He's battling outside, and then inside he's wrestling with fear. But what's his posture? It's one of thankfulness to God. Our joy doesn't rise and fall on our circumstances. To be the aroma of Christ means that our joy doesn't rise and fall on the place that God has put us in. You have been placed here to be the aroma of Christ. Now Paul is reminded here that Christ is the conqueror, the victorious king. And that's why he says he always leads us in triumphal procession. The victory is not Paul's, the victory is Christ. And it's Christ in Paul. See, the picture here is of a Roman triumphant parade. The triumphant parade in Rome was given to the conquering general. And this was a conquering general that not had won a battle. It wasn't that they had won a battle. It was that they had come to complete and utter defeat and victory over the enemy. They had basically slaughtered the nation and taken it over. It wasn't like they returned home, said, job well done, we're leaving them where they're at. It was that this general had so utterly destroyed and defeated that the defeat was, was, was gone. It was completed. There was nothing left. And so in this parade, the politicians would lead out. It's kind of funny, isn't it? Even then, they took credit for the general's work. That's not to slam the politicians entirely, because we need to pray for them. But it is interesting, isn't it, that in 2,000 years, history has not changed. With that, following the politicians were then those who came behind the politicians with pictures or spoil from the victory. They might be carrying dead bodies of the enemy. They might have utensils that came from there. They might have pieces of the land that they had taken, buildings that were destroyed. But it was the spoil. It was evidence 
of that destruction. Then following those individuals were all of the captured soldiers, the now slaves, the enemies who had been taken and brought back to Rome. And they were then followed by a golden chariot in which the conquering general stood in, surrounded by his officers with the Roman priests offering incense up to their gods. The interesting thing is that the way that the language actually speaks in this passage is that Paul is not yet fully identifying with the victory of Jesus. He is first identifying as an enemy of Christ, as the conquered enemy of Christ. He recognizes In Romans 5.10, what he says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So Paul is saying, I was an enemy in this triumphant march. I was taken captive. I was a slave. And, And the Roman slaves were paraded, and at the end of the parade, they then would battle with each other, often to the death, And the ones that remained standing were then executed. What Paul's saying is, Christ, you defeated me. And as your slave, I'm laying down my life. And as I lay down my life, now no longer am I a slave to death, but now I'm a slave to righteousness. I'm a slave to you, And so no longer am I in the parade, but I am now outside of the parade, sharing in the victory. Being an aroma of Christ means that we are laying down our life for Christ. It acknowledges that we were once sinners, once enemies of God. And the beauty of that is that we were enemies who now get to rejoice in the conquering parade. And Paul is saying here, listen, wherever you go, Jesus is the one that is leading you. Wherever you go, he is the one that has already conquered of what is to come. And as you have laid down your life, you are now a part of the victorious army. Luke 9.23 says, And he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Martin Luther put it this way, he said, God creates out of nothing, therefore until a man is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. This is a wonderful picture. How are we the aroma of Christ? We die to self. And we live for Christ. That's how we're the aroma. It's not more complicated than that. 
We die to self and we live for Christ. Recent studies show that there are more people leaving a church, churches in America than there are coming in. They estimate that within the next 15 years, less than 50% of the United States will even claim to be believers, to be Christians. It's staggering. It's staggering because our own comfort drives that. God has called us to be the aroma. We have a world that is dark and smells horrible. I mean, how many times do you look at the news and go, oh, that's awful, it's terrible. But do you remember that you're the aroma of Christ? That we are the sacrifice that's pleasing, it's being offered up to the Lord? And so he says this. He says in Romans 6, 20 through 23, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time for the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're slaves to God. We're bond servants. That's not a bad thing. That means that our master is now Jesus who goes before us as a triumphal victor. And the best part is that God not only makes us an aroma of Christ to God, meaning a pleasing sacrifice to God through that, but then he makes us his fragrance. Now, what's the difference between fragrance and aroma? This word fragrance in Greek, asme, is the word that is used multiple times here in this passage. And it just means smell. It, it often kind of refers to something that is pleasant, but it can be bad. It can be putrid. And what he says is he says, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. All he means by that is this. Between the lost and the saved, when you are dying to self, when you've given your life to faith in Christ, you are sacrificed pleasing to God as you surrender to Him. That's what he's saying. Amongst all those in the world, anyone, everywhere, you are the aroma of Christ. Have you ever been around somebody and you just think, oh, that person knows Jesus? Two things are happening there. The Holy Spirit is testifying in an agreement. And there's an aroma. There's something different. It doesn't take long, does it? When somebody is surrendered to Jesus, it doesn't take long. There's a distinct aroma. But now, this fragrance. Oh, it's the smell. And I love what he says. To one, a fragrance from death to death. The other, a fragrance from life to life. Here's what he's saying. To the unbeliever... The fragrance that you're giving off actually convicts them of their own sin. It's the offense of the cross. It testifies the truth of the cross, that lives are changed through Jesus. 
that hope and joy are found in Jesus. It is why Jesus says, they will hate you because they hated me first. And so to the lost, it's convicting. Jonathan was sharing with me earlier this week, and I didn't ask why he share this, but I don't think he'll mind, that at work, there are times when people apologize when they cuss around him because they notice he doesn't cuss. And he's like, I don't, you don't have to apologize to me, right? There's something about our lives that testify to the truth of the cross, and it brings conviction. And for some, it's death. For some, it reminds them of the future, of their lack of willingness to submit to Christ in humility and faith. And so that fragrance that we bring actually is a fragrance that reminds people of death. But here's the other side. To others, it's a fragrance from life to life. Your life actually proclaims the hope of the gospel as a reminder of that gospel. Now we might look at this and say, how in the world does the lost just know They know something's different. But also because God has called us to speak it. Our witness is not just one of a presence. Our witness is both one of presence and word. It's one where God has called us to both be and to speak. There were some dark days this past year as I have shared with you guys. There are some very specific days that I wrestled to experience the presence of God. And while I knew it here, I fought it here. But God used you as the body of Christ to be that fragrance. I can remember praying one day, saying, God, I need to desperately see you. And the Lord prompting my heart and simply saying, you've seen me in your church. And I shared with some others at the end of May last year that while this journey was so different than the previous journey, one of the greatest journeys I had was seeing the fragrance of Christ in his church. As you'd pray for us, as you'd meet our needs, as you came alongside for us, as you cared for us, you were the fragrance of Christ, life to life. There are times when we ask questions. You know, one of the things I often ask people when I don't see them at church is, hey, how have you been? Where are you? And I don't mean this in any bad way. I just say this as truth. Often people want to give a very lengthy explanation of why. I'm not asking because I'm trying to convict you. I'm asking because I care. And I'm curious. And my job as a shepherd is to know what's happening with the sheep. When we just withdraw from fellowship from one another, you may feel like it's no big deal. 
that, hey, I'll pick it up someplace else. You know, in this season, I just want to disconnect because I'll pick it up someplace else. The problem is you're only seeing one side of the picture. There's that side. But the other side is God has made you a fragrance to others. And God working through you provides an entirely different perspective and an entirely different picture than someone else. So when we are in fellowship with one another, God's fragrance through us is actually being seen by others. And that's why it's important that we remain in fellowship with one another. It's not just about disconnecting and the methods that I can find to kind of keep myself encouraged. It's also about how my fragrance encourages others. God has made you a unique part of the body of Christ. This week, I was down in the East Bay. We're looking to move my mom to up here closer by as time goes on a little bit. And, and so that morning, I, I had felt the Lord just impress upon me to fast that day. Now, I knew I was in trouble because fasting when you're traveling is not always the best thing to do. And I wasn't going far, just a few hours away. But when you go to your parents' house, they like to feed you, right? And so I got to my mom's house and she said, we're going to have lunch today. I was going to order this place. And there's a restaurant in town that we, we love. It's a great breakfast place. And I said, I, I can't eat today. And so I just kind of stayed away from Elisa and my mom as they went about doing their thing. And, and, and they came over and they sat down as I was working on my sermon and eating their food. And I intentionally would not look their way because I did not want to look at this food. <laughs> Literally, they get done with that meal. And my brother-in-law sends me a text and says, hey, I just want to show you where I'm having lunch today. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. My favorite place is Genoa Deli in Napa. He sends me a picture. He's like, you finally talked me into going. I'm like, this is just not good. (laughs) My father-in-law, and I am not kidding you, my father-in-law calls about 30 minutes later. Says, hey, Elisa, when you're done there, why don't you and Tim come over? I'll treat you guys to dinner at Porky's tonight. (laughs) So Elisa says, oh, I don't think, I don't, Tim's, Tim's fasting today. I was like, I'll just go with you guys. I'll go with you guys. So if you know anything about Porky's Pizza, I don't know if you can do, it's, it's, a, it's a small hometown kind of pizza shop in San Leandro. I'm not going to get into it, but you're in San Leandro. Porky's can pay me later, but go. It's, uh, it's a true old-time pizza shop. It's fantastic. When I got there and I sat down and I smelled that combination pizza. <laughs> I thought, this is what the aroma of death to death is like. (laughs) That you cannot partake of it. You can't have it. And I watched as my father-in-law and Lisa ate it, and it was like, life to life there. Now, that's a really poor example But nonetheless, that's what the aroma is. It reminds us who we're not or what we can't have or what we don't have. And it encourages us in knowing who we do have.
and what we have in him. That's what it means to be the fragrance of Christ. First Corinthians 1.18 points out, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is power of God. The cross is the power of God to those who are being saved. That's why we are the fragrant aroma of God. So finally, in verse 16, he asked the question then, who is sufficient for these things? So he says, listen, your aroma is not based on the open door. It's not, not something that is only because great things are happening in the ministry. The aroma you can rejoice over because Christ leads you triumphantly wherever you're at. And then he says, who is sufficient for these things? Well, the beauty of being the aroma of Christ is it's not based on some magical ingredient but it is based on the supernatural ingredient of Jesus. So our sufficiency is based on genuine faith in God under Christ's authority. Sufficiency is based on genuine faith in God under Christ's authority. It says, who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Our sufficiency is in Christ. When we proclaim God's word, it's not because we've come with excellency of speech or some creative way of doing it. It is that we proclaim the truth. The most sincere thing that we can do is proclaim the word of God and live the word of God. We proclaim it with our lives and with our mouths. So who is sufficient? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. That means that either the word is watered down. It means that trickery is used to persuade people into it. It means that the methodology moves away from the central centrality of the truth and puts it on the edges. We don't peddle God's word. We're not trying to sell it to you. We're not spiritual salesmen. We're just bearers of the truth with sincerity. And so often when we come into the presence of people and people are asking us questions about our faith, we can move to being spiritual salesmen. I got to have the right pitch. Just got to have the right pitch. Sometimes the best answer is, I don't really know how God got a hold of my life. All I know is that when I sought him, he changed me. All I know is the hope of the gospel has changed me. And when I repented and put my faith in Jesus, I experienced his hope and his peace and his joy. And more than that, his love. You want to see how it's lived out? I used to not like you and I love you now. I mean, that's truth, right? So that's what he's saying. 
2 Corinthians 3.5 says, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul said specifically in 1 Corinthians 2, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Here's what he's saying. If somebody's teaching the word of God, you can learn from any of them. It doesn't matter. You choose to eat. And sometimes the meal is fancy and sometimes it's not. But if it's the food of God, it's completely and utterly sufficient for what God is doing. That's why we can rejoice that's why we can be thankful is because we're an aroma that is not based on anything else except for Jesus and his work in our life. God has made us sufficient. So when you feel like I can't share the truth, I'm worthless, I'm, I'm not somebody that's going to be the aroma of Christ. You're right, none of us are, but God is. God is the one who makes us worthy. And it is because of the cross that we are his worthy servants. He has made us worthy in him. He is the one that proclaims his hope. And he is the one that makes us his aroma to the world. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you've blessed us with a wonderful smell, a fragrance that both gives life and in some instances reminds of death. But God, we are grateful that you said that our aroma is a pleasing sacrifice to you, that a life of surrender, a life of submission to you, to service to you, is a sacrifice that is pleasing. Lord, may we remember the victory that you've already accomplished and may we walk knowing that your aroma wafts around us and declares your very presence to people in need of you. And we ask this in your name. Amen.